Now, just before we come to our passage for this week, we've got a blue slip question uh, through last week. Um, do feel free, as always, to write questions on blue slips and try my best to answer them. So this is what it said. Last week's message was that I am... This was last week. So two weeks ago's message was that I am not holy. This week's, that's last week's, was that, that I'm not doing enough. How do I avoid despair when reading or listening to the Sermon on the Mount? Is there something I'm not understanding? Well, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we've got to understand that it is a challenging sermon that Jesus gave. It's supposed to make us feel a bit uncomfortable. It's supposed to make us feel uh, as though uh, things aren't quite right in that sense uh, with our lives, because none of us live uh, perfect lives. None of us live up to the standards uh, that are here in the Sermon on the Mount. So in one sense, it's supposed to make us feel uncomfortable. So if we're feeling a little bit uncomfortable and challenged, that's probably a good thing, because that's probably how the original hearers uh, would have heard it as Jesus spoke. But I should say that the Sermon on the Mount is not a cause to despair. Uh, so we're talking about uh, two weeks ago not being not being holy. That's true. We did talk about that uh, under verse six, where we said, "Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness." And we were saying that actually the reason that we hunger and thirst after righteousness, after holiness, is that we don't possess those qualities. Do we? We don't live lives uh, that are right. But here is the encouragement. Each of those verses has a second half, doesn't it? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. How do you not despair uh, through the Sermon on the Mount? How do you keep going? Well, because the Sermon on the Mount points you, even in the midst of difficulty now, to that wonderful future that we have in store where we won't sin. We will be holy. And we have a foretaste of it now, don't we, in in Christ, uh, as we're declared righteous, for example, now. And we're called saints, which means holy ones. So there are encouragements now. It's not all sort of bad things now and... Uh, great things in the future. There are great things in the future that keep us going, but there are encouragements now, even in the midst of those difficulties. So I would say, with, with, with that side of things, keep looking forward and keep looking to what you have and who you are in Christ. Now, last week, we talked about being salt and light, um, and that summed up here as, uh, I'm not doing enough. Again, if we feel that challenge, that's good, isn't it, in a way? Because none of us live up to what we should be. All of us uh, fall short. But again, the challenge is then to uh, to be doing those good works, which is it should come in a way almost naturally to us as Christians. It's, it's, he speaks, you are salt, you are light. The challenge there is to make it seen. Uh, so if you feel that you're doing no good works, then that's that's probably a, a good reason to be feel uncomfortable and, and as though things should change. If we are doing good works, though, if our lives are being characterised by the uh, things we've been reading so far, then the challenge is to let our light shine. And again, that shouldn't be a reason to despair. Uh, it shouldn't be a reason to feel exhausted either because uh, we can do those things in the settings that we're already in. It's not saying that we have to go and climb a huge mountain or go and live in a monastery. It's saying in the life that you live already, let your light shine. So yeah, that is challenging. That is hard. But Jesus gives us the strength uh, to do that. So don't despair and keep listening as well because there is more coming. It will be challenging, but it's about living the best life, isn't it? Uh, As Christ calls us to. I'm going to pray before we look into the scriptures now. Let's pray. Father God, open uh, your word to us as we've just been singing. Uh, Father, pray that we'd meet the Lord Jesus in his word this morning. Father, pray that as we look at this tricky topic, 
uh, of the, the law and the prophets and how it all fits together. Father, pray that you would give us understanding, but more than understanding, Father, pray that it would impact our lives. And Father, give us the strength that we need to live holy lives for you. In Jesus' name, amen. How do we live to please God? How do we know what to do? What map do we follow? What instructions do we listen to? There are no shortage of voices in the world offering advice uh, today. Uh, A couple of years ago, there was a bestseller uh, called 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. Uh, Like it or loathe it, it was a massive hit. It was all over the internet, it was all over the television, just basically offering advice for life. If you look at Just Books in Otley, the self-help section is one of the biggest sections in Just Books, and that's sort of repeated across bookshops across the country. Even pop music is at giving advice. If you were around and listening to music in 1999, uh, there was Baz Luhrmann's Sunscreen, uh, which was just advice set to a background uh, music. Uh, or if you're a bit more with it, uh, I thought this was a new song, I've checked it, it's three years ago. Uh, Dua Lipa, New Rules, which sort of give you rules for how to deal with a breakup. But it's all offering advice, isn't it? Well, the world's religions are at it too. So Islam has its five pillars. Confess, pray, give to charity, fast, go on a pilgrimage. That's the five pillars. Even Buddhism has its eightfold path, including things like don't lie, don't steal, don't kill. Uh, Buddhism has rules just as any other of those religions has. Follow them and you get to nirvana. Uh, In that sense, it's just a religion like other ones. It's just got better PR, generally Buddhism. But uh, where do we go as a Christian for moral guidance? If we're going to be salt and light with righteous lives, what's the sort of code that we're to follow? Where are we to go for our instructions? Well, Jesus addresses that question now in the Sermon on the Mount. And in doing so, he answers one of the age-old questions. Is the Christian obliged to keep and follow the Old Testament law? What is our relationship as Christians to the law of Moses? When we look at books like Exodus and, and other books like that... What do we do with the rules that are there? We should have a bit of a clue already, because we did Leviticus last year, if you were around for that. But Jesus spells it out here. He tells us how we are to live to please God and be salt and light in the world. So first of all, he tells, we're told that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law and prophets. Have a look with me again at verse 17 and 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now at first this can almost look sort of contradictory within itself. Jesus says that he's not come to abolish the law, but he has come to fulfill the law. So it's sort of gone, but it's not gone at the same time. Now, the traditional way to look at this has been, uh, since a man called Thomas Aquinas, has been to split the law in three parts and do different things with the three bits. Okay, So you've got ceremonial, which is all the sort of ceremony and things like that, which uh, traditionally has been that it's been abolished by Christ. The national law uh, depends on whether you have a national church setting the law uh, that you can sort of follow. Uh, The moral remains, 
And different parts of the law, like I say, are, are dealt with differently. Some are abolished, some continue, uh, some are fulfilled, and all sorts of different language has been used over the years. Now that sounds reasonable, and it can be helpful to make those distinctions sometimes. But there are three big problems with that sort of traditional approach to this, this question and this verse. The first one is, how do you decide what is a moral law? If it's just the moral stuff that continues, that Jesus is saying hasn't been abolished, what is a moral law? So for example, Exodus twenty three nineteen, The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. Next verse, or next part of it, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Is that ceremonial food law? So the Jews don't eat cheeseburgers. Do you know that? Because it's a mixture of the meat of a cow and the milk of a cow. Putting them together so they don't do it. So is it a ceremonial food law? Is it a moral law? Sorry, is it a national law? Was this a sort of pagan uh, practice of a nation next door they weren't to copy? Or is it a moral law? Is there something immoral about using the milk of an animal to cook its child? I mean, it sounds a bit wrong, doesn't it, as you sort of say it out loud. But there's not really clear guidance as to where it fits, is there? Or what about the fourth commandment about the Sabbath? Is it ceremonial? Is it like a weekly festival that's uh, to be not to be kept anymore? Is it a national thing? Is it a weekly bank holiday, if you like, to be kept by the nation? Is it moral? Is it a sort of command that doesn't change for the whole of time? And again, it doesn't come with a commentary to tell you which one it fits under. And if we cannot decide if something is moral, national or ceremonial, how can we then decide whether we should or shouldn't apply and enforce it? Should I be rebuking you for uh, eating cheeseburgers? Silly, obviously I shouldn't be. But should we be picketing football matches that are played on Sundays? Because that's breaking an eternal commandment. The distinctions are not always that's clear. That's, that's the first problem with that approach. Number two, the second problem is that this is not how the Bible speaks about or treats the law. It doesn't use it in that way. The Bible never makes this threefold distinction. In fact, in the New Testament, things are applied that you'd think would have been done away with. Um, so, for example, if you turn up uh, 1 Corinthians, keep a finger in, in Matthew, 1 Corinthians 9, again, I haven't got the page numbers for this, so if someone wants to shout out a page number, 1 Corinthians 9, 557, in the, uh, is that the white ones or the blue ones? The, that's the, the little print, the white ones, uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 1058, got it in stereo, brilliant. So let me just read um, this from 1 Corinthians 9, 8 to 11. We're going to have a couple of verses in here, so keep, keep there for a while. So it says this. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? This is Paul speaking. For it is written, the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So there Paul is talking about an argument for supporting a church minister. And he uses a verse about an ox 
being muzzled when it's ploughing the grain. And then further down, 1 Corinthians 9, 13 and 14. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So Paul here makes an argument for support of gospel workers about from regulations about the priests in the temple, which you count in the ceremonial sort of section. It's the sort of thing we saw in the book of Leviticus. So Paul uses things from sections that you wouldn't expect uh, here in the New Testament. And yet in the same chapter, he says this, so 1 Corinthians nine nineteen to 21. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win uh, more of them. To the Jew, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Paul, in that same chapter where he's used those things from the Old Testament law, speaks of not being under the law. And yet he's using them in his writings, isn't he? But applying them in a radically different way. He speaks about being not under the law, but then he speaks about being under the law of Christ. We'll come to that uh, in a few minutes. But we can see that Paul here certainly doesn't seem to recognise this threefold distinction where some bits are done away with and some bits are kept. Actually, he uses all bits of the law as he's explaining uh, what's happening. And that's just one chapter from one book of the Bible. So that's the second problem. The Bible doesn't treat it in that sort of distinction. The last big problem is that in practice, it would mean two-thirds of the law is done away with. So it says there, doesn't it, in our verse back in uh, Matthew, that not uh, an iota, not a dot, will be done away with. They were sort of the smallest letters you could get, or even parts of letters that you could get. Be a bit like the way we say about dotting I's and crossing T's. He's saying, like, not a dot from an I, not a cross from a T will drop from the law. So that's what it says. But with this traditional approach, you're essentially saying not a dot or an iota, but about two-thirds, it seems to me. In practice, it actually seems much more, wouldn't it? Because the laws are not split evenly between those three categories. If you took this view, then you would avoid a book like, say, Leviticus. Because you'd be saying every week, I've not got much to say, because it's uh, it's all been fulfilled and done away with. So I don't feel that this view does justice to this verse. Don Carson writes um, that an appeal to the historic threefold division of the law undoubtedly has merit in certain contexts, but I don't think that helps us explain what Jesus means in Matthew 5. So what view should we take? We need to ask ourselves two questions of the text. Jesus said that he did not come to abolish the law and prophets, but what were the law and prophets for? And then the second question we need to ask ourselves is what does it mean that Jesus fulfilled the law? So if he's saying he didn't abolish it, but he did fulfill it, what does that mean? So firstly, what were the law and the prophets for? Well, we'll stick within Matthew. If you come to Bible skills training, uh, you'll learn that it's better to get your answers from the same book. Uh, Matthew 11, verse 13. Uh, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. 
That's what it says in Matthew 11. I think it's on the back of your notice sheet. Matthew 11, 13. But all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. In Matthew's mind, and in the way Jesus is speaking here, the law and the prophets were there in part to prophesy. That is, they were to speak uh, of, the, uh, of God's will, but also the idea there to, to speak into the future. They were to look forward. What to? Well, their role of looking forward finished with John the Baptist. They prophesied until John. They prophesied until the age of fulfillment began. So the Old Testament, the Old Covenant with Moses, was in force until the New Testament, the New Covenant, began. Its role as prophet finished then. So the Old Testament law was a guardian, a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. And the fact that we're right with God by faith alone. That's how it's spoken of in Galatians. So Galatians 3, 24 and 25, on the back of your notice sheet again. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So he's saying that the Old Testament was there until Jesus as a guardian, but now we're not under a guardian. That law's not enforced in the same way. But what does that actually mean? Well, it doesn't mean that it's been discarded. Rather, as Jesus says, it's been fulfilled. Secondly, it doesn't mean that it's irrelevant. Not a jot has passed away from it. And it is Christian scripture and is useful as such. But it now comes to us in the hands of Christ, as John Bunyan put it. It is to be understood and interpreted in the light of Jesus. So if you want to know what it looks like to interpret the Old Testament, to interpret those laws in the light of Jesus... Well, look ahead, read ahead, as Jesus takes us through some of those Old Testament laws in Matthew. If you want to know what that looks like, go back and listen to our series on Leviticus from last term. The law is anything but irrelevant, but it doesn't mean that it applies in the same way. So that's what the law and the prophets were for. They were there to look forward to Christ. That was their big role, and that finished when Christ came. The second question we need to ask is what does it mean that Jesus fulfilled the law? So you see there again in verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What it means by that is that Jesus was the one to whom the law pointed. When he arrived, the law and its prophesying role was over. But far from destroying the Old Testament, as some in the early church wanted to do, like a guy called Marcion, Jesus actually brought it to its proper conclusion. Again, Don Carson writes, Jesus does not conceive of his life and ministry in opposition to the Old Testament, but in terms of bringing it to fruition. That is towards what it points. Thus the law and the prophets, far from being abolished, find their continuing validity in terms of their outworking in Jesus. So what it's saying there is that the law actually finds its meaning through Jesus now. It's not irrelevant, but that Jesus interprets it to us. So Jesus fulfills it in that way. He brought it to its proper conclusion. But as well as that, Jesus was also the one perfect law keeper. He unlocked the blessings of the law, if you like. 
It's a bit like a, a computer game that has different levels. I don't know if you play a lot of computer games or apps, I think they call them now. Uh, you know, like Candy Crush or, or things like that, where they've got all the different levels. <laughs> what it's saying here is that Jesus didn't use a cheat and get round a level. He didn't sort of skip a level. He didn't get rid of the Old Testament law and say, it's too hard, nobody can do it, get out of the way. What it's saying is actually he completed it. He did it. He was the one person in the whole of history who actually managed to keep the Old Testament law. So level one is completed. We now move on to level two. He fulfilled the old, won its blessings, and brought in the new covenant, the New Testament. So it's not that the old was sort of embarrassingly shelved. You know, oh, this this was a mistake, we'll just not mention it. Actually, it was finally completed by the only one who kept it perfectly, the Lord Jesus. In him, all is now accomplished, as verse 17 puts it. When Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, he had his completed work on the cross in mind, but also his completed work of fulfilling the law. Um, So what we've seen really so far is Jesus fulfilled um, the law and prophets. When he's saying it's finished, actually he completed his life in fulfillment to that. So it's not that he's abolished the law. Actually, the law is still useful. It remains, but it remains as a completed venture. Christ fulfilled the law. So does that mean the Old Testament is irrelevant? No, but it does mean the application has changed. So our second point is, so do and teach the law of Christ. Have a look with me at verses 19 and 20. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what follows can be a little difficult to understand. And if we misunderstand them, it can be terrifying, I think, these verses... The Sermon on the Mount, as I mentioned before, is supposed to challenge us, but it's not supposed to terrify us. Jesus tells us not to relax these commandments, otherwise we'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now again, there's two questions. Firstly, what does it mean to relax a commandment? Well, the word there literally means to loosen. It's related to the word for abolish in verse 17. It's the same sort of idea. If you imagine a picture of a tent or a tent that you build, to abolish it literally is to take it down, to take down the tent. To relax is to loosen the guy ropes, if you like, taking down the tent. So we're not to loosen any of these commandments. In the context, that would mean abolishing them, taking down part of the tent. The practical outcome would be a group of amoral or immoral Christians, loosening the commandments that don't quite suit them. And we know through history of groups that have done that sort of thing. So that's what it means to loosen them. But secondly, what are these commandments? Now, some think it's the Old Testament law, in which case we're back to teaching uh, the minutiae of the law. Um, The thing is, though, that people in Jesus' day were quite good at keeping that sort of law, weren't they? But that's not what Jesus has in mind. Others think that the commandments that are mentioned here that we're not to loosen are the commandments that follow. And that, I think, is more likely the Old Testament law in the hands of Christ, so to speak. So what is he teaching uh, on the Sermon on the Mount? 
That, so in other words, it's what he's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And commands more often means that in Matthew, again, keeping within the same book. So famous uh, Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 uh, and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Do you notice there in Matthew at the end, he doesn't teach them to go, go say, go teach them all the law, but all that I have commanded you. The commandments of Jesus, the law of Christ. Indeed, in what follows, if you read through as Jesus takes us through some Old Testament commandments, he says all the way through, uh, you have heard it said, but. But he doesn't say, you have heard it said, but this is what it really meant. Even though that's what we might think. Jesus says to them, you have heard it said, but I tell you. He depends on his own authority. The commands come not so much as an explanation of the original meaning, but as deeper commands from the mouth of Christ, the law of Christ. And this is what we are left with, the law of Christ. What does that mean? Well, it means the whole Old Testament law is fulfilled in Christ, ceremonial, national and moral. And now we follow Christ's law, which is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. And the guiding principle of that is love. That is the fulfilling of the law for us. Not a legalistic nitpicking like the Pharisees did, but action driven by genuine love for God and for the other. Which is certainly not the way that the laws were understood in Jesus' day. People in those days said you could insult your brother as long as you didn't kill them. You could commit adultery with your eyes as long as you didn't do it with your body. They treated the law as something to get round rather than a thing to obey. And Jesus is going to spell this out explicitly in the weeks to come. But this is the way that our righteousness will exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes. Because the righteousness that we are to have is not a legalistic, pharisaical one. Straining the gnat but swallowing the camel, as Jesus put it when he talked to them. But a righteousness that comes from the love of God. Being poured into our hearts and overflowing to him and to others. So Paul can write in Romans, Romans 13, 9 and 10. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Or Galatians, Galatians five fourteen. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is not a wishy-washy love, but genuine Christ-like sacrificial love. So Paul again writes in Galatians, Galatians two, uh, 6, verse 2, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Or if you're not happy with Paul, have it from the mouth of Jesus in Matthew. Matthew seven twelve. So whatever you wish uh, that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Or Matthew 22, 37 to 40. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You see, the Pharisees, they were great at tithing and 
fasting and putting on a show, but they were not so hot on loving God and loving their neighbour. Their righteousness was a sham, really. It's not to be so for the follower of Christ. So the law of Christ has love as its focus. That's not to say it's wholly unrelated to the Old Testament law or without content or commandment. We'll see that in the words of Jesus that follow and the teaching in the rest of the New Testament. And as Douglas Moo says, we can confidently expect that everything um, within the law of Moses that reflected God's eternal moral will for his people is caught up to and repeated within the law of Christ. So Christians are not without law, but it's not the Mosaic law as originally given. It comes to us in the hand of Christ. That is what we are to believe. That is what we are to teach, both here and in the Great Commission. Do you notice that we're to teach one another these things in both word and deed? Now, of course, the righteousness that gets us into the kingdom is the righteousness of Christ. His perfect record becomes ours. Our sin becomes his. We are rewarded for his life. He was punished for our sin. This all takes place when we put our trust in Jesus, when we turn from our sins and turn to trust in him. But in Matthew, as we said last week, righteousness is something that is lived out. He means that someone who has been declared righteous by God, someone for whom that great exchange, that great swap has taken place, will go on to live a righteous life will be characterised by a life lived for God. Not a perfect life, but one that begins to show that righteousness as we become more and more who we have been declared to be by God. And for our guide, we have Christ. Our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. He is our guide for how to please God. He is the one God tells us to again and again to listen to. So if we want to please God, look to Christ, both as our our saviour and example, both as the sat-nav, if you like, in the car, giving direction, but also the fuel in the engine, giving us strength to do it. We look to love one another, and as we do it, we'll shine like lights, we'll season like salt, we'll show the world a better way, Christ's way. So let's do that. Not treating this as an academic exercise, you know, don't go away from this morning thinking, well, I now understand the relationship between the Old Testament law and the law of Christ. Instead, let's take this as a challenge to live that out. Live out the law of Christ, bear one another's burdens, love one another, genuinely from the heart, being salt and light in the world. And all the time looking to Jesus to give us strength as we follow his map for life. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you've given us the whole Bible. Father, thank you that all of it is useful for teaching, for training, for rebuking, um, for reproof, all those different things. Father, thank you that most though that it points us to Christ. And Father, pray that as we seek to live lives pleasing to you, Father, pray that we would look to him. Uh, Father, pray that we would see in his life how we should live, as we see his compassion, as we see his love for uh, you and his love for Uh, his uh, uh, fellow human being. Father, we pray that he would be uh, who we are becoming more and more like. Father, help us to love one another genuinely from the heart this morning and as the week goes on and as the months go on. 
Father, pray that we'd be characterised by that self-sacrificial, Christ-like love. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.